Welcome to the Know Why Podcast. I'm your host, Liberty McCarter. For many of us, it's not enough to know what people say about life's most important questions. We also want to know why. Each week, Know Why tackles tough questions on topics ranging from spirituality to current events. While we approach these issues from a Christian perspective, we discuss diverse opinions and ultimately dive into what the research says. Are you ready to know why? Let's get started. Hey, Know Why listeners, this is Liberty. And for this week's episode, we're gonna do something a little bit different. As we near the end of 2023, we wanna highlight five of our most popular episodes of the year. Now, if you've been listening to Know Why Podcasts for any amount of time, you know that we like to do series. So I think it's pretty cool that the five most popular episodes of the year are actually a really good representation of all of our series, including Know About Pro-Lifers, Know About Thriving at Work, and Know About Healthy Tech Habits with also a topical episode thrown in there that was one of our most popular. If you've missed these episodes when they came out, or if you just want to hear the full interviews again, you can find them easily by visiting knowwhypodcast.com and clicking on the show notes tab. Now, let's get started. One of my favorite episodes that we've done this year was my interview with Dr. Brad East from Abilene Christian University. We had a great conversation on the very important topic of whether social media robs us of a richer life. And this was so interesting to me because Dr. East actually talks about this in one of his classes with students at Abilene Christian University, and he challenges them to give up social media or at least cut back on their screen time habit for 60 days. And the stories he has to share about the impact that makes in their lives were just mind blowing. And it made me and so many other listeners that I heard from say, you know what, I wanna try that challenge myself. So I really think you'll enjoy this conversation with Dr. Brad East. So the the article, if folks go read it, uh, in the article I share an exercise um, that I assign my students. What they do it follows a recommendation of a writer named Cal Newport, who's really great on this. He wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, and I, that's one of the books that we read together. And he suggests um, not, a, not a digital detox, but a digital declutter. He thinks mm-hmm. when you detox, you, uh, you delete Instagram from your phone, and then after one, two, four, six weeks, you put it back on your phone, and you're just as addicted as before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're an alcoholic and you give up drinking for two weeks, then get, then hop back on the wagon. It doesn't, it doesn't, nothing changed. Mm, yeah. And so he instead suggests uh, a declutter where you take actually 60 days and the first 30, you eliminate all non-essential apps, platforms, programs, devices, et cetera. You know, you, uh, most of us need some access to the internet, some device uh, to do our jobs, to do schoolwork, to get by. But we do have a lot of non-essential stuff on there. So he says, delete it all um, for 30 days. And then um, after 30 days, you, you engage in a, in a second month. And in that month, you decide what you want to stay out of your life for good and what you want to reintegrate, but with better habits and boundaries. And so that's a really useful exercise for a semester. So around week four, week five, they begin this declutter. And what they do for me is they don't use a computer. They, use, they buy a journal and take handwritten notes mm. and basically keep a diary. Uh, what was it like to um, leave your phone in the car when you took a two-mile walk with your friends around campus? You know, 
I, you know, they, they kind of feel like their phones are the nuclear football. If at any moment they don't have it, the world will come to an apocalyptic mm-hmm. end. And so I try to train them to imagine life where they don't have it handcuffed to their hand at all times. So all that to say, they usually come in averaging four to six or more hours on their smartphones per day. That's, uh, and the, predominantly they are on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, two things happen. One, they delete that for the for the for one to two months. Uh, and then two, if they are going to bring it back, which not all of them do, then the the aim is for their daily uh, device time to be down to one to two hours, because a lot of studies show that. Um, adverse mental health effects begin when you are on your phone two or more hours per day. So if you're, if you're in the, in my view, if you're doing it 45 to 90 minutes per day, that's a win. And what my students say before they begin is that they quite literally cannot imagine being 20 year old college students on campus without Instagram uh, because that is how they know anything is going on in the world. It's mm-hmm. how they receive direct messages. It's how this, that, and the other. And then after the first week and the second week and the third week, uh, they realize not only that they can live without it, but that their lives, they feel this sort of relief come over their bodies. They become less itchy and nervy. They become less anxious. They're able to sit still for more than five to 10 minutes at a time. They're able to open up a novel and read and actually read a chapter or two or six without sort of like losing themselves into it. And, uh, and all they needed was a kind of nudge that not only was this not impossible, but they might actually experience it as life-giving. And so I commend, I truly, I commend that to any listener. I commend it to anyone of any age. I promise you, uh, you'll be glad you did it. You know, if somebody does delete social media or declutter, at least they're having some new time, not spending, you know, it frees up a few hours a day. What do they fill that time with? Um, and so you've mentioned reading. Uh, so obviously that's an important one, but what are some of the other options that open up? Yeah, that's actually, we spend uh, maybe the, the final third of the semester asking the question like, okay, uh, you have time on your hands. I had, I had a freshman one year, his, he calculated that the previous week leading up to the declutter, he was on his phone 10 hours a day. Wow. And so, uh, and then he cut it down by the end of the class to two hours per day. So he gained <laughs> eight hours per day, wow. you know, uh, across. And so it's kind of like, well, I mean, just imagine that's a, that's a whole life, you know, that you've got, you've got uh, a lot to work with. So we actually, it's, it might sound a little funny, but we spend a lot of the class talking about hobbies. Yeah. Like, what do you do with leisure time? If you're not doing, if you're not in class, I've got students, obviously this would apply for people to, who are not in school as well, but I've, you know, they they go to class, they have homework, many of them have jobs and they sleep. They don't sleep enough, but they do sleep. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, what else do you do? And, uh, obviously I want them to be readers, but I accept not only will they not all become bookish nerds like me, but, but, you know, the goal is not to sort of replace those eight hours with eight hours of reading every day. Um, it's, it's exercise, it's walks with friends, it's, uh, 
gardening. It's uh, picking up a musical instrument. It's learning another language. It's things like prayer and fasting and feasting and uh, quiet devotion time with scripture and with God. I mean, there's so much stuff. And, you know, obviously we're, this whole conversation is piggybacking on multiple generations of, of high television viewing. And that's been partially translated into our tablets and smartphones. And so part of what we talk about is this doesn't mean binge Netflix instead of looking at Instagram. It's, it's find a way to be in God's good creation, be with other people, find ways to serve at some, at a local food pantry or prison or what have you, you know, uh, or just, you know, find, find ways to do nothing productively on, on a Sabbath. When people imagine pro-lifers, they often think of people who are extremely religious, fundamentalist, and probably Republican. And that's why I loved my interview with Monica Snyder of Secular Pro-Life because she busts that stereotype through and through. And it's no wonder to me that both of her episodes with Know Why Podcast were among our most popular for the year. But we're just going to give you the excerpt of part one of her interview with the Know Why Podcast, where she explains more about her organization, Secular Pro-Life, and talks about how she uses her background in biology to spark conversations on the topic of when human life begins and whether humans have personhood with people who are skeptical about the pro-life issue. You're going to find this interview fascinating, and after you listen to the excerpt, I bet you'll go back and listen to the entire interview. Pro-lifers often say that life begins at conception or life begins at fertilization. Um, But what does that actually mean? Is that just a philosophical position or is that an actual biological fact? That is a great and very important question. So overall, it is both. And it's important for pro-life people to understand this because a lot of times what what we will say is life begins at conception. Biology says or science says that life begins at conception Therefore, abortion is wrong. And when we, when we present an argument like that, we're sort of conflating biology and philosophy, and it's, it's confusing, and it can make it difficult for people to suss out exactly how we got to our conclusion and how they can respond to it. So I think a more accurate way of sort of spelling it out is to say that biologically, the human life cycle begins at conception, or you say fertilization. It begins with the zygote. The first stage of a human organism's life cycle is the zygote. And that is a biological fact. The philosophy comes in when we ask ourselves, okay, well, is that human organism morally valuable? Is mm-hmm. that human organism a person? Does that human organism have rights? If so, what are they? How does that interplay with the rights of the woman who is pregnant? All of those things. So it is, yes, a biological fact that in terms of us as organisms, our life cycle begins at conception. That's not a religious belief. That's just straight biology. But the philosophy comes in and what we think of a human organism at conception. And both of these ideas, the biology, the biology idea, the philosophy idea are important. So sometimes I will have pro-choice people tell me, oh, yes, everybody knows you have a human organism at conception and that's not important everyone knows that the question is the philosophy one and the philosophy question is important but no not everyone knows that you have the beginning Mm -hmm. of a human life cycle of conception it's very clear to those of us who are arguing about this all the time that's where you get people saying well the sperm is alive so why Mm -hmm. does the zygote matter you're conflating a gamete with an organism you get people saying oh if 
if abortion is murder, then menstruation is manslaughter. If abortion is murder, then masturbation is genocide. These silly mm-hmm. things. Or, or one I've seen a lot more recently where it's like, if you think abortion is murder, then you think that when you eat eggs at breakfast, you're eating a chicken. Mm-hmm. And this, this represents unbelievable biological ignorance because... Uh, an unfertilized chicken egg is not a chicken, just like an unfertilized human egg is not a human, and it has nothing to do with what we're saying. And so I do think establishing the biological fact is important, and we do know that a lot of people have converted from being pro-choice to pro-life when they got a better understanding of the biology and the fetal development. We have a whole section on our website talking about specifically people who started to become pro-life when they realized the clump of cells rhetoric was at best misleading and dishonest. Mm-hmm. So the biology is important, but you can't get there with biology alone. The philosophy is also important. And that opens up this whole other huge segment of discussion about, okay, you have a human organism. The zygote is the beginning of a human organism. You were a zygote once, I was a zygote once. But when did we become a person? Right. When did we become a human being with moral value and rights? This mm-hmm. is a huge question, huge, whether you're religious or not. It still involves talking about what what grants what grants rights, what makes us valuable, why do we care, why our species versus other species, all of these things. You have to get into the personhood debate. And that's much broader. I think that the argument for morally valuable human beings from the beginning onward still does not have to rest on religious precepts. There's there's a lot of thought out there about what is a consistent definition of personhood. That would include all the born people we already consider valuable that have a right to live, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so far, pro-choice people have a lot of different ideas of when a human becomes a person. Um, but we find that they all involve some major, very scary flaws in the argument. Back in November, we actually paused the series that we were in the middle of to address a very timely issue, the war between Israel and Hamas. As you know, back in October, uh, the terrorist organization Hamas carried out a brutal attack on Israel and a war has been raging ever since. A lot of people are seeing this in the news and they have questions about it. And so that's why we invited Dr. Gary Frazier to join the Know Why podcast. Dr. Frazier is a frequently sought after speaker on the topic of Israel. He's also a published author on the topic. He's visited Israel himself over 200 times in his life, and he's also an expert in biblical prophecy. And that's relevant because this conflict that's happening in Israel is actually something that has roots thousands of years ago, and that's the insight that Dr. Frazier brings. And I think so many people learned a lot from this episode, and it kind of looks at the the current events we're seeing with Israel and Hamas from the big picture perspective. You're gonna learn a lot in the next few minutes as you listen to Dr. Frazier. So God had made Abraham these certain blessings that Abraham obeyed. He followed God down to a geographically locatable strip of real estate that was occupied at the time by the ancient Canaanite people. But God intended that the descendants of Abraham, specifically, according in chapters 15 and chapter 17 of Genesis, through the child of promise, Isaac, not the child Ishmael. Ishmael, as we know from those, perhaps they've heard it in Sunday school or Bible classes or they've read the Bible themselves. Uh, the word Ishmael comes, it simply means God hears. And so the bottom line is God had told Sarah and Abram they were going to have a child in their old age. Well, they thought that was humorous. Mm-hmm. And Abraham said, hey, will a son be born to a man at 100? And will Sarah give birth to a child at 90? 
And so they thought that was real funny. And so they wanted to see it immediately. And while it didn't happen, Sarah came up with plan B. And that was to have a child through a surrogate, her, her Egyptian surrogate by the name of Hagar. And so she gets pregnant uh, and Ishmael is born. And, and let's be clear, Abraham loved him. But that was not the child of promise that was going to come miraculously. And that came about when Isaac was born. And so now we have these two brothers and they are at each other, so to speak. And so this conflict is ancient. It's 6,000 years old. And unfortunately and regrettably, it's still going on. So the issue today is about the land of Israel. So God gave this little strip of land to the descendants of Abraham through the child of promise, Isaac. And what happens is, why would God do that? I mean, what, what's so important about this particular piece of land? Well, first of all, it is the where the ancient trade routes, mm. where they would leave Asia Minor and make their way along the Mediterranean coastal plain down into Egypt. It was called, It's called today the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And so by strategically placing them there, God intended that as these merchants carried their goods and services to and fro, north and south, that they would be infected with the worship of one God, monotheism, a single creator, because these people were pagan idolaters and they had a plurality of gods. And then on to the east of the Via Maris was the ancient King's Highway, which runs through what is today Jordan and ends up down at the Suez Canal and so forth and so on. So we have this small piece of land that we call Israel today. And I don't know if our listeners know this, but it's only 55 miles from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. Mm. And it's only about 260 miles from north to south. So we're talking about a sliver of a land that will virtually fit in the peninsula of Florida between Orlando and Miami. It'll fit within the Garden State of New Jersey. That's how small it is. Mm -hmm. And think about this. Every day we hear about it in the media. Why is that? Because it's a God thing. And so this conflict that's raging right now has to do with an ancient, ancient uh, issue. And the average person today just doesn't understand why this is taking place, but it's been going on for 6,000 years. Another episode from our series on pro-lifers made it to our top downloaded episodes of the year. And that was our interview with Sherilyn Holloway of Pro Black, Pro-Life. This is such an important topic because Sherilyn actually addresses the factors that drive black women to go to abortion at higher rates than anybody else in this nation. And regardless of what your views are on abortion, she gives practical advice on how we can change the future of America and actually make it a better place for everybody. So this is, again, super important. You're going to learn a lot from listening to Sherilyn. She's a voice that everybody should be listening to and paying attention to right now. And I am so thankful that she joined the No Way podcast. If you have an abortion clinic in your neighborhood that does other things like STD testing or even um, sex education, um, offers sexual protection and things like that, and that's who you're used to going to because you're free or on a sliding scale, so you only pay like, you know, a little bit. When you become sexually active or find yourself in a situation like that, this is where you're going to go, mm -hmm. right? And so in terms of Planned Parenthood being the largest branded abortion provider in America, um, they t tend to build their facilities in areas that are 60% or higher minority. Wow. And so 
just as if, you know, we're looking at the health statistics in the African-American communities as in terms of high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, you know, in communities where they do not have adequate nutritional um, access or their food deserts, you're going to see higher numbers of that because mm-hmm. they don't have access to the, to the nutritious uh, things that they need to make healthy meals. They have fast food. They have, you know, gas stations and convenience stores. It's the same thing. And so if this is across the street from me or in walking distance, this is where I'm going to go to get my health care. And so um, that is the first, you know, thing is that we have this, you know, uh, proximity. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, is that we are in even in these communities and we're often being told uh, as, you know, black women that, you know, we have too many children out of wedlock. And so a woman who is going to, you know, find herself pregnant, single mama pregnant, you know, how is her community going to receive her as mm-hmm. being someone who is having a child out of wedlock? Uh, there are healthcare disparities. So because of the healthcare disparities and we're finding the uh, maternal mortality rate in the black community being substantially higher than those in developing countries, what does this mean for the care I'm going to receive? Mm-hmm. Uh, economics is probably the largest driver of women who are single moms, black single moms, who find themselves in a position to choose abortion make $35,000 or less. Wow. Single moms who are African-American who make $40,000 or more are 70% more likely to actually have their child. So we're talking about Mm a $5,000 difference a year. Wow. Um, and how someone feels in terms of what they're able to provide for their children. And so when we look at all of these factors, uh, there are specific systemic drivers that are leading women to these choices. Mm -hmm. And unless we are determined to fix those and not fix those ways in, in a downstream manner, which is what we, you know, have been trying to do or only in a downstream manner, uh, but collectively go upstream and say, okay, what policies are in place? What um, systems are in place that actually just need to be torn down and rebuilt? Mm. Um, because that's not exciting. Like that's mm-hmm. not sexy, right? Like it's sexy to, you know, lobby on the Hill or lobby in your state for great policies. Um, but it's not sexy to say, you know, what's really wrong is all of this. <laughs> and it's been 50 years um, since Roe. Mm-hmm. And in 50 years, we have not taken the time to dismantle certain systems and rebuild them when we could have. Yeah. And so when people say like, oh, that takes time and that takes money, like you're right, it should have already been done. But it wasn't because we were focused on downstream solutions, both in and out of the abortion industry. So both pro-lifers and pro choicers are facing looking at downstream solutions. The only solution to a woman who is having economic issues when she's pregnant is not abortion. Mm-hmm. Like, why is that the only choice she gets? It's not choice. It's the end of the year and a lot of people are probably burnt out with work. But according to Dr. Eddie Brewer, who joined the Know Why podcast earlier this year, that can be avoided. 
I loved this interview because Dr. Brewer has so much wisdom to share on cultivating a healthy work-life balance, and it's actually backed in research, uh, including his own research, because he did his doctoral dissertation on burnout, and he dives into the habits that can help us avoid burnout at work. You will really enjoy this episode with Dr. Brewer, who is a senior pastor at Capitol Hill Assembly of God in Oklahoma City. In my research, what I found was, number one, I would say, of course, as a pastor and as a Christian, take care of your spiritual health. Mm -hmm. Because maintaining a genuine connection with God will help to sustain you through the challenging times uh, that you're facing, whether you're in ministry or in a secular career of some type. And I love what James 4, 8 says. It says, come near to God and he will come near to you. And I would also say it's your responsibility to give attention to your spiritual condition. But Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Mm. Another coping strategy that would help avoid burnout, believe it or not, is gratitude. One study found that people who were asked for 10 weeks to make a weekly list of things they were thankful for were more positive about life than people who were asked to write down five aggravations over that same period of time. Wow. So having an attitude of gratitude makes a big difference in a person's life. Another coping strategy that I'd recommend is rest. No human being was ever created with the ability to manage uh, everything in life uh, with stress and pressure and all of that without having times of relaxation. Uh, one of the participants I interviewed told me he was burning the candle at both ends and he ended up in the hospital when he was 24 years old going through tests that senior citizens go through because of issues with his heart. Wow. Uh, another one of the participants I interviewed ended up in the hospital at age 30 with ulcerative colitis that was caused by his workload, and doctors told him his colon looked like that of an 80-year-old, and it was due to stress. Mm. And then another participant had panic attacks and blood, high blood pressure due to job stress. And an illustration that I have used a few times is if you take a rubber band and you pull it with opposite fingers and you stretch it, a rubber band is a great little item to keep things collated and together. Mm -hmm. But if you pull the, that rubber band far enough, it will break because it, it's gone beyond its capacity. And individuals can collapse emotionally and physically without adequate rest. So all of us need to take a weekly day off. And if you know the Ten Commandments, you know that's one of the Ten Commandments is a day of rest. Uh, God called it his Sabbath uh, that, that we're to take. And by the way, it's the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Mm. And the Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath law is, a, is an indication that both the physical body and the mind need regular rest. And the Bible says those who are unwilling to work are lazy, but the Bible also says those who refuse to rest are disobedient. There's another coping strategy that I would recommend, and it doesn't sound very spiritual, and I'm not telling you anything people probably don't already know, but you've got to develop a hobby, and it's different for all of us, uh, but find something that will replenish you. Some people jog, some people exercise regularly, some people uh, like to play golf or go fishing, for many years, my biggest stress reliever has been riding a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. I can go out even for an hour 
and I can get out in the country, and that relaxes me more than anything else. Uh, whether it's rock climbing or reading or cooking or music or playing games, anything. Everyone needs to find activities that will reduce stress and provide meaning and enjoyment and fulfillment. So it's important to have interest outside your job uh, that will provide some stress relief. Thanks for listening to the Know Why Podcast. If you've enjoyed any of the episodes you've heard, would you consider leaving a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts? This will help others be able to find the podcast as well. And don't forget, you can go to knowwhypodcast.com at any time and go to the show notes tab to read more about the episodes that you've heard. Thanks for listening.